Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, COVID-19 has shown many differences in political styles when it comes to us here in Canada and our neighbors in the U.S. How are we handling it on both sides of the border? Henry Jasek from McMaster University joins us to talk about this. Our economy has been hit hard due to the virus, and there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. We'll talk about the ramifications of that. And the Transportation Task Force came back last week with their best options for that billion dollars from the provincial government. We'll talk with the chair of that committee and get some reaction. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On this side of the pond, uh, as we mentioned, very differing styles politically uh, to see the way that uh, the Canadian and U.S. governments are handling issues. Uh, While there seems to be an awful lot of infighting going on in the United States between governors and the federal government uh, about where to get supplies and who's buying supplies and who's outbidding whom for this, there is an amazingly uh, unusual sense of uh, cooperation that seems to have been established here on this side of the border uh, between uh, politicians who usually uh, just had daggers at each other for the longest time, but uh, they seem to be working toward a common cause, uh, which is great to see. And uh, it may be putting us uh, in, in a very, very good position when it comes to dealing with COVID-19. Henry Jason, political science professor at McMaster University, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just great. Happy uh, Easter Monday, and it's, I'm happy to be with you. Good to be with you. Glad you. There's so much to talk about here. Let's let's talk about this side of the border first, and then we'll contrast that with what some mm-hmm. of the stuff that's going on uh, in the United States, because I know you're watching that very keenly as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that, uh, that, of course, in a special session this weekend, the Canadian Parliament uh, passed the relief bill that was happening. Uh, there was some concern about that, that uh, the opposition parties had some some problems with it, and at first they didn't even know how, what kind of a, a parliament we were going to have. Uh, was it going to be a virtual parliament? Was it going to be the same thing of just a few people going in there? Uh, there's always going to be differences, I guess, Henry. I mean, that's politics. We get that. But it's amazing how quickly these these three parties, especially, well, I'll put Elizabeth May and the Green Party in there as well, uh, seem to be able to find some common ground and get things done in, in, a, in a pretty quick fashion. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the, premier, uh, the Prime Minister certainly has, uh, and his staff have been do, dealing fairly well uh, in the in the last um, couple of months. And, uh, and although there had been uh, people in the Conservative Party at various times who wanted to sort of do some... I don't know, people might call nitpicking, but, you know, to have op- opposition to things here and there. I think they probably learned that the Canadian people are really behind what the federal government is doing. And I think they've learned that the best thing is just to go along with it. And, of course, the uh, the, uh, the NDP, the Green Party, and the Bloc uh, have all pretty much in favor of what the Prime Minister was doing. So we, we have a lot of unity there. And what's interesting is also... Uh, Pretty good unity among, uh, oh, very good unity, I think, with the uh, provincial premiers, even though we have a, you know, a very uh, uh, strong federalism with a lot of power at the uh, uh, provincial level. The provincial premiers in general seem to have been able to cooperate with the prime minister. So it's, it's nice to see, very nice to see. Well, it, yeah, there was an interesting tweet from uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney uh, over the weekend talking, of, actually very complimentary to Christia Freeland, who's the Deputy Prime Minister, mm-hmm. for her work in coordinating the, the federal and provincial responses to the pandemic. Uh, that You don't usually see that, uh, that, that sort of, not, not just cooperation, but actually praising uh, a, a partisan politician on the other side of the fence uh, for the work that they're doing in situations like this. Well, Freeland has certainly been a very strong uh, player in the Trudeau government. And, even, and when she was de- handling a lot of things internationally, particularly with the U.S., I mean, she was getting praise from the U.S. media for dealing with Trump and with the American government. So she, she, she is just, you know, really have getting praise from all sorts of people for all sorts of things. And she is obviously a very, very strong person and the fact that he has her as deputy prime minister and handling the provinces uh, she's been just doing a, a magnificent job i think and and that sense of cooperation i guess has really kind of helped uh, i guess with the spirit of what's going on mm-hmm. uh, just going back to alberta of course they uh, they don't seem to have the same number of cases uh, that they had anticipated they were going to have, and as a response to that, they've decided to give an awful lot of their equipment uh, to Ontario and Quebec and to BC, uh, provinces that are still in the thick of these things right now. And, and again, that's that's a sense of cooperation that we don't often see in this country. It, uh, we te- have a tendency, I guess, in, uh, especially when it comes to trade and things of that nature, Henry, to start building walls instead of bridges. Yeah, I mean, I think it has benefited us 
that Alberta has a premier whose career basically was primarily in the federal government. Yeah. In the Harper regime, and and then he goes to a uh, you know down to be premier in Alberta. He's the number one guy, but he knows what the what the federal government can do and can't do, and uh, so he has an appreciation of that. And I think that has really benefited uh, Alberta. I think it's really certainly really benefited the country that we have an Alberta premier uh, who really understands how the federal government operates and what, you know and essentially what it can do and not do and who uh, understands the importance of cooperation between the two levels of government. Well, and to that point, it's amazing how fast things are getting done now. I I guess desperate times call for desperate measures, but another story that I'm sure is going to get a lot more uh, attention uh, as we start to see some of the ramifications of it was the uh, the deal essentially that uh, the Canadian government cut with OPEC and, and Russia and the others mm-hmm. about uh, about you know energy prices, uh, which is great news for the province of Alberta right now, which was looking for some sort of stability. I mean, they've been asking for that for months now, mm-hmm. and, and bang, it, it didn't take a whole long time. It was one conference call and they settled the whole thing over the weekend yeah and that i'm sure put kenny in a a much better mood when it came to the federal (laughs) government Uh, on the other side of the border i contrast that with the 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 conflict that seems to be going on between a number of state governors uh and of course the president himself in the handling of the crisis uh but before we even get to that element of it i guess the most recent story that we want to talk about is uh Trump's uh, relationship with uh, with Tony Fauci, who is the the head guy, of course, who's basically in charge of the uh, the American response to COVID nineteen, uh, internationally respected uh, doctor, a, a brilliant man who seems to know his business inside and out, uh, but more than once now he's uh, contradicted uh, Trump exact right up there on the podium, right beside him. Uh, a number of times, and now this hashtag fire Fauci thing is up there, and Trump has retweeted that. What would the political ramifications be at this stage, uh, Henry, if, if Trump just said, you're out, you're, do- you're toast, you're gone? Well, I think one thing that uh, Trump recognized early on is that, uh, that essentially if he came in you know, swinging uh, at the experts that disagreed with him, these experts happened to be medical doctors, and that, the pub- that, that probably was the point at which the, the people would really turn against him, you know, that... Uh, he could get away with a lot of things, but in a medical crisis like this, and then you fire your top doctors, he probably learned that initially that was really, really a bad thing to do. So he basically has tried to initially ignore them, which he did and for about three weeks you know, earlier on, which he had the intelligence. They had told him what was going on in China. They said it was going to come over here and spread real fast. They had... they they presented him with excellent information. He ignored it uh, and lost a lot of time in dealing with it. He didn't want to even hear that news. He, and uh, then finally he was forced to you know, deal with it. I mean, because the one thing, I mean, Trump can fire a lot of people, but what he can't do is fire the virus. That's, uh, that's, that's his big problem. And so he, he's had to put up with them. Now, Fauci, interestingly, in the beginning, recognized the relationship was a bit you know, dicey between the two mm-hmm. of them. And so he was very reluctant to go back and criticize um, a Trump. And so, but he's becoming a little, a little bit more and more outspoken because he is really very much afraid if they lift, you know, the, the uh, self-isolation rules in the United States too early, say the beginning of May, it, all the models would say that we're going to be back, the United States would be back in July where they are today. So, they were all all the most of the models assume you have to go to the uh, you have to go through May at least and May and into June before you even start to loosen these things uh, restrictions up, and he he doesn't I mean he just obviously he feels so strongly about it he's talking more and more strongly about it and he's he's just you know more obviously contradicting Trump, and Trump's really in this real dilemma because Trump really 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 wants to get you know, economic things going in the U.S., but uh, he, so he's in this dilemma. How does he deal with Fauci uh, when, when now Fauci is, you know, basically disagreeing with him fundamentally? And, uh, but at the same time, he still, you know, is smart enough to know if he, Fauci has become really a very popular person in the United States. He's, you know, he's, he's the go-to man when you want to know what's really going on with the, with the, with the virus. And so he, uh, so Trump has a real, real problem here, and I don't know what he's going to do, but he must be having fits at night about, you know, where, what his position is right now, 
And, it's, and in public opinion polls, the ones that I've been seeing, the trend is although he held up for a while, people rallied around the president, which they often do in crises, at least for a little while. Trump is starting to, uh, you know, the gap between uh, Trump's popularity and Biden's popularity is, is increasing, and Biden's on top by about 11 points last I saw, and he has been increasing it. So Trump really doesn't know what what he can do. I, I'm sure he is He's really totally, totally conflicted at this point. Well, and there's nobody going to convince him of this, but it, it seems to me that as you watch what he's doing, uh, even on a daily basis, he's his own worst enemy. Yes. Political leaders, and our, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is doing the same thing. You know, daily briefings, you know, talking to the public mm-hmm. and say, here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and, and you know, uh, Trudeau has got, a, what, about a 78% approval rating uh, over right. this uh, crisis. Yeah. Uh, Trump, not so much. And, and one of the reasons why anybody who's watched those things, Henry, mm-hmm. is he just rambles on and on and on. It becomes a political rally for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he goes off topic and starts talking about the senators and, and, and talking about this government. He's not talking about the, and, and of course, the information he's giving about the virus is, is totally false. And Fauci will get up there and correct him right after that. And, of right. course, people, I, I, now, that's not going to have any impact on the 40% that just love Trump no matter what. I get that. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the nation's looking at this probably and figuring this is the wrong guy in the wrong place. Yeah, well, I mean, a crucial group I've always watched in the U.S. are independent voters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we know, you know, if you look at party affiliation in the U.S., there are more Democrats than Republicans, although Republicans tend to vote more than Democrats, and so they even that out there in some ways. But the independents are really the key ones, and Trump had the independents, you know, on his side, certainly in 2016, started to lose them in 2018. That's why I lost the House of Representatives. And now um, he's behind Biden by 12 points among the independent voters. And so the Democrats are dying to get rid of, um, you know, literally, maybe in some ways, dying to get rid of uh, Trump. We think of the Wisconsin voters who, who went out and voted when, when in a very dangerous situation in a primary last week, um, standing out in line. It was amazing to see people go out and put their health at risk in order to, you know, vote uh, in their primary. And the independents are, to, you know, now are supporting Biden. So, you know, right now, all the all the signals are, um, you know, very, very bleak for uh, Trump. And uh, so it's a it's a it's a very different situation between the two places. But there is this interesting what, what if we could go replay the past for both of them. The ironic thing is Trump had excellent advice about what was going on in China, how it was going to come to the U.S., what was likely to happen. He ignored it. He didn't want to hear it. And he wasted weeks and weeks and weeks. When we compare the Canadian case, the evidence is that um, Trudeau didn't have anywhere near the quality of information that Trump had. So he, we were, he was, his government was essentially relying on public sources and not the sort of intelligence sources that the United States had. And we lost three weeks here for a very different reason. We didn't have the quality of information the Americans had. So if we had American information and, and the resolve and the... Uh, um, you know the uh, intention of, of of our prime minister to do something about it. We probably would have been much much better off. But we we have had more deaths simply because we didn't have good enough information. So it's an interesting to con- contrast these two systems where they had f- they have flaws, but they had different flaws, and we both to a certain extent wound up you know losing more people than we should. Although I was watching an American show in the U uh, in the U.S. Uh, over the weekend, and they contrasted that Canada has has better outcomes than uh, than the United States, and probably will have more and more simply because we we have more pro- uh, I think uh, cooperation on the self isolation. Well, exactly, and and there's been intensive studies done about both governments' reaction to this, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there's there's a, a, a big, huge body of evidence that indicate that the Trump administration was told a lot more about this uh, and did nothing about it. You can still remember that famous clip where he says, we have four or five cases, pretty in a week or two we'll have none, yeah. poof, it'll just magically disappear. But even Dr. Tam, who's now heading our uh, COVID-19 uh, 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 war, really, against the pandemic up here, uh, was quoted in January as saying, based on the information that she had been receiving, mm-hmm. that this was going to be very mild and, and not much of a challenge for Canada at all now this is our expert on this and you can only speak of course based on the knowledge that you're given so it sounded like somebody wasn't sharing information with other people that uh, they probably should have and well it's got us in the mess that we're in right now i suppose well possibly one reason for this was we really uh forfeited uh, a lot of uh, the use of a lot of information we got in the sars uh, 
epidemic uh, mm-hmm. uh, 17 years ago. It had been a top-of-mind issue, had been one of the top ten issues that every year the Canadian government would worry about. It had, we had a lot of capability. But over that 17 years, it sort of disappeared from the radar. It dropped out of the top ten issues. We stopped worrying about it. We didn't, uh, we, we didn't devote the intelligence sources um, uh, on China and on the world to really be ready for it. So we lost the advantage. And even though not only the intelligence, but, I mean, we had excellent, um, you know, knowledge by people who had fought it. Uh, Donald Lowe, I remember, he, uh, he was our leading intelligence expert uh, with the SARS uh, uh, attack. And he, I remember him because he came to MAC. I actually heard, went to a speech that he, he gave uh, uh, to, to the medical doctors. And, I, uh, and, and he was just absolutely fantastic. But he's passed away. Uh, he wrote a book about the lessons of SARS, which everybody, after 17 years, forgot. But it w- if we had followed what he had said in his book, we'd been much better off. And the one person who really took advantage of it, though, he had an, somebody who was assisting him in the SARS virus, but she went out to become the medical officer of health out in British Columbia. And people are saying, generally, British Columbia has done an excellent job in dealing mm. with it. But it's because we had... Uh, I think in Bonnie Henry, I think she was, you know, working on the SARS uh, uh, fight with with Dr. Donald Lowe, but she left the province because she got this uh, top job in British Columbia. So that that's really, you know, disheartening. We often see this that po- politicians, political leaders, forget over time, and the public forget over time the lessons of the past. And there's so many examples of this. But in 17 short years, Canada really for, tended to forget, you know, what had happened during SARS. Henry Jasek, uh, political science professor, as always, having me. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Okay, thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other more contentious things that's going on, of course, is uh, how we're going to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. What's the economy going to look like? And some political leaders, of course, more than others, seem more concerned about the economic ramifications than they seem to be about the public health ramifications of this. And that's uh, rather sad. But uh, one of those, of course, being Donald Trump, President of the United States, who has hinted rather strongly over the last couple of days that he wants to see the economy go back. He wants to see this uh, this physical distancing and the isolation finished and, and get everybody back to work. And, well, let's face it, he's got an ulterior motive. There is an election coming up in November, and uh, he'd like to have a booming economy. Is it that simple? Can you throw a switch and make it all happen? Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the Good School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Welcome to the program today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, is it that simple? I mean, flick the switch, okay, everybody, it's over. You can come out now un- from under the rock and un- from under the bed. Uh, you can go back to work. Everything's going to be fine, yes. and, uh, and we'll live happily ever after? Yes. Well, the short answer to that question is that we really do not know because uh, a shutdown of this size and scope has never been tried before. We've seen it done in small circumstances. So the example I always love to give is that there's a hurricane bearing down on some part of Florida. We board up all the businesses. We tell everyone to take shelter, hunker down for a day or two or three until the hurricane blows past. Then we come out, we clean up what we have to clean up, repair what we have to repair. And oddly enough, normally within a week or two, it's back to pretty much business as normal. It's almost like the hurricane never happened. Uh, that's fine, but that's also, uh, one, very short time span, and two, very regionally oriented. In other words, a city 200 miles away, 300 miles away, it didn't close down. The hurricane didn't affect them at all. The question here is this hurricane of COVID-19 is affecting the world. It's a global thing. Not only have we shut down our economy in Canada, but the United States, uh, England, France, Germany, you name a country, we're almost all in this hold mode. Whenever we get past and whenever we get the all clear that we can come out and start to function like normal human beings again, is it as simple as flicking a switch? And I, I'll tell you honestly, Bill, I don't have any research to prove this. It is only my gut intu- intuition. But I think it will be something like that. In other words, I think we will recover much more quickly. Now, does that mean it takes three months, six months? Yeah, it could be either of those numbers. I'd like to think we might be back to normal by Christmas time, assuming there's no second wave of COVID-19. But it's not going to happen in a day or two or a week or two. And I also don't want to minimize the, the fact that there will be some casualties here. 
There were businesses that were barely holding on before COVID-19 hit, and I'm sure they will not have been able to weather the storm and come out of it on the other side. I think there are some individuals, same way, who uh, financially were so tight that any little uh, bump in the road was going to cause them to fall into bankruptcy, and I'm sure those bankruptcies are going to be higher. But for most people, the average people, I think it will be like turning on a light switch. The only thing is, when do you turn it on? When do we get the all clear? And I know this is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but right now what we're doing is we're watching the same place that gave us coronavirus, Wuhan, China, the large city in China, that after 11 weeks, 11 weeks of isolation, have turned the lights back on, and we're watching them to see how fast do they start to bounce back, what do they do right, what do they do wrong, and most importantly, have they waited too, uh, too little of a time period, meaning is there going to be a second wave of, of COVID-19? That's the one thing we definitely want to avoid. Well, and to your example, uh, we're also noticing the fact that the second wave seems to be starting to happen to Wuhan now, too. Uh, as they start to come out of this and send everybody back to work, they're starting to see a spike in the number of identified positive cases again. So with that in mind, of course, Tony Fauci down in the United States is warning the president, not if he's listening or not, that says if you do this too early, you're going to go right back to where you were uh, back in April and May or, or March and April, I, I should say. Uh, and it's going to be worse than it is this time around. So, I mean, where yeah. where do you where do you draw this line? There's got to be a balance here. But at the same time, I, I still remember one of the classic lines that one of the doctors used uh, it was, look, at, the economy's not going to get well until people get well. And then we're not there yet. Right. And I, I agree with all of that. Now, Donald Trump seems to have, I remember, remember a few weeks ago, his whole uh, deadline was this weekend, the Easter weekend. Yeah. yeah. He's going to turn everything back on. His new deadline seems to be May 1st. Almost all of the state governments in the United States who shut things like schools, what have you, they've all done this for the month of April, and they said, well, look at it as you get closer to May 1st. So that's why I think he's picked on that date. I don't think he's going to reopen everything on May 1st. I don't think there'll be any relaxing of social distancing at that point. If I was betting, maybe, maybe the earliest could be June 1st in all this. But this whole question of a second wave becomes interesting Excuse me. As you know, the American election is in the fall, yeah. uh, first Monday in November, and if he gets it wrong, we might still all be in lockdown when when the Americans should be voting in November. So it is also in his interest to pick the right date here. Uh, if America winds up locked down, it could even be worse at that point. But uh, you know, we're still trying to figure our way around this. There is tremendous volumes of medical research being done right now, Bill to try to figure out why do some people seem to get the disease, why don't other people get the disease. I, I saw a study the other day that said people with higher vitamin D levels don't get the disease. They're testing out that chloroquine product that uh, um, Donald Trump touted so much. They're also looking at some of the antiviral medications that people with AIDS use, see if that might be something. Um, there's even this thing called pre-exposure prophylactis or PrEP, which some gay men take to try to avoid getting HIV in the first place, could that be something? There's, there's just so much work being done. Um, I, I think every day that goes by we learn more about the disease, and that will inform the decision. But if you're sitting at home listening to you and I talk about this, I, I just don't think you should be getting your hopes up for any change of the status quo, at least for the month of April and probably the month of May. We're probably into this until the first day of summer. And, and we have to caution ourselves here and probably remind ourselves as we go through all of these things, Marvin, that uh, we can't be getting our medical advice from our elected officials. Uh, and, and that seems to be part of the problem because Trump's talked about each and every one of those things. I guess somebody has maybe mentioned it to him during his briefing that afternoon. But any doctor will tell you that you've got to go through a series of tests uh, and uh, before you can actually say, okay, get that stuff out the door. That's the solution to this. Uh, so when they told us it was probably a year away from some sort of a vaccination, uh, Fauci and others are still saying that that's still holding true. Th those may be other things that we can throw into the mix here, but there is no instant solution here. Right. Now, I don't, I don't want to alarm people listening to us today. But there's the other side of this coin, Bill. We just saw on the weekend, on Saturday, uh, an emergency sitting of our parliament and the Senate and even the governor general to approve this uh, 
support program is called the CEWAS, the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, mm-hmm. who's designed to try to allow larger businesses to keep people on the payroll by giving them a 75% subsidy of their wage. And that program is designed to run for roughly uh, 12 more weeks until roughly the middle of June. Uh, people have asked me, well, that, that's great, but if we're not out of this by then, can the government keep affording to becoming uh, Canada's paymaster? And the short answer to that is no. We, we don't have an infinite ability to borrow money. These are extraordinary amounts that we're borrowing now, precedent-setting amounts that we're borrowing now, but reasonable given the world's response. We're not borrowing that much more than any other country who's trying to keep uh, everything afloat. But this can't become the new normal. We can't do this for 18 months or, or 36 months or five years. That's, that's just not going to be feasible. So one way or another, we have to find some way to function. Right now, we're into lockdown mode, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. But just as you look, say, six months from now or 12 months from now, what is the new normal? What, what way are we going to function? Because this cannot continue indefinitely. So that's the other pressure on these elected officials. Not that they want to endanger people's lives and send them back uh, too early, but also they just can't give all of these supports forever. We've got to find some way to function even in the shadow of COVID-19. Okay, there's another element to, to any kind of a recovery, and, and you've talked about this. I remember you and I had a number of discussions about this back in 08, 09, as a, that recession was, was nagging at us for the longest time, and that's consumer confidence. And, and I'll go back to your point about the medical aspect of this. Uh, if there is a concern, and there is, a, I think, a legitimate concern about a, a, a new wave of COVID-19 if we do this too soon, you can announce next week, Marvin, that, okay, Canadian Tire, Home Depot, open your doors. I'm not going in there. And a lot of other consumers are going to say, I'm not, no, I, it's not them, it's nothing personal, but I don't want to be part of that second wave that's going to get this thing. So I'm going to stay right home where I'm doing, I'm not going to go in there unless I absolutely have to. So you're going to open the doors, but if people aren't buying stuff, uh, you're not in recovery mode. Well, that's right. And, and you talk about consumer confidence or, or consumer certainty that they're not going to be infected. Remember, again, what we've said is that a younger person might get this disease and really feel very few effects at all, but transmit it to their grandparents, and it could be a death sentence for them. Nobody wants to do that going down the road. So if we reopen the doors, or maybe I should say when we reopen the doors, whenever we signal all clear, we at the same time are going to have to give people some other guidelines for just living their lifestyles. For instance, Maybe it's an all-clear on June 15th, but you must wear masks outside at all times. Or, uh, you know, it's an all-clear, but uh, anyone who leaves the country at any time has to come back and self-quarantine for two weeks. Or whatever it happens to be, we're going to need some guidelines for living our life. I think if I simply yell to people, okay, the boogeyman has passed, come out of your houses and it'll be normal, I don't think anyone's going to believe me. So I think when we, whenever we want to give the all-clear signal, we also have to give people some more guidance for living their life. All right, but again, to go back to this idea of consumer confidence, yeah. if, if you're one of the uh, unfortunates that have lost your job or you've been laid off, whatever the case might be, uh, the good news is short-term you've got this program the federal government's come out with, and hopefully a, a lot of those people are going to be covered by that. But like you say, they can't do that forever. But even if you get called back to work, Marvin, are you going to be willing to make big purchase spending? Are you going to buy appliances? Because you're going to think, hey, if there's a second wave and I lose my job again, I'm stuck with bills. Uh, I'm going to just hold on to my money right now. I don't think I'm going to buy much of anything. Right. I'm not going to buy a new car. This is the wrong time for me to get a house, the wrong time for us to have a child. Let's wait and hold on. And time is the way you rebuild trust so that mm-hmm. every day that goes by, every week, every month that goes by, and things start to look back, quote, you use that word again, normal, things start to look normal, then confidence will come back. But again, you can't flick a switch on confidence. Once it's gone, it takes a, a long time to rebuild that kind of confidence. Um, and again, I think it will depend very much on how consumers assess the response of their governments. Now, to date, I think most polls tell us that people kind of like what they've seen coming out of Ottawa and what they've seen coming out of Toronto. They've actually been fairly impressed with leaders who, by right, they don't normally very impressed with. So, you know, that's a good sign. We're, we haven't lost complete faith in everything. I think most of the world maybe has watched Donald Trump and lost faith in him, but that's not the person who most directly affects me. So, you know, we haven't totally lost everything, but again, it's going to take time to rebuild that. 
consumers right now, I'm not sure I'd use the word they, they lack confidence. I think they are just overwhelmed. There's so much news on everyday basis, whether you pick up a newspaper or a TV set, every story, one after another is COVID-19. I, I just feel so overwhelmed. We're grabbing on to any kind of good news that we can get. And I don't know when this is all over. If I give you the all clear, if we'll see the opposite happen, there'll suddenly be overconfidence. I'm too young to have lived through something like the Second World War, but that was a very oppressive time. For six years, the Second World War, everything was bad news, battles, death numbers, and so on and so forth. And then one day, there was victory. And when that happened, victory in Europe, victory over Japan, there were, as I remember, tremendous celebrations. We might see something like that here. Uh, I just, I'm just not sure how consumers are going to react whenever we sign that all clear. Is there going to be pressure on, on the businesses themselves, uh, on the, uh, the retailers, uh, to make it attractive for people to come back through the doors and spend money? Well, I think, again, they're going to have to figure out what is their new normal. Like, for instance, I was in a grocery store the other day, and there was somebody at the door only allowing so many people in. Sir, you have to wait a few moments. The store has got all the capacity we're going to have. Then when I went to check out, there were spots on the floor because we have to stay six feet apart. Mm -hmm. Is that the new normal going forward? Are those plastic screens that, at least for the moment, seem temporary measures to protect the cashiers, are they now permanent? What, what is the new way of functioning? And I think that will behoove us a lot here as well. I think if I am a retailer, I don't know if I have to give you a big cash incentive to come back, but I have to show you a safety incentive to come back. And probably as well that I'm not all about the bottom line, that during this time period we are watching how all businesses respond. And there have been some who said, you know, profit be damned, I'm going to make this donation, or I'm going to open my store extra for seniors. I don't have to, but I'm doing it to be a good member of the community. I think consumers are going to remember those who do that versus those who don't do that, and I suspect that will change your buying habits on the other side of this. That's an interesting uh, concept. Uh, again, trying to determine exactly what this is going to look like. Uh, you know, maybe two months from now, three months from now, we won't have to line up to get into the grocery store or the liquor store. But uh, I, I still think you're going to see an awful lot of people physical distancing. Like you say, that six-foot margin between people uh, at the cash registers and things of that nature. I mean, I think there's going to be an awful lot of caution for a long time to come here. There is. And yet on the other side, again, Bill, I've seen, I, I hate to seem like I'm arguing both sides of a coin, but, again, we've never done this before. Mm -hmm. By nature, humans are social animals. We like being with other people. When I tell you that you cannot go to a restaurant, the one thing you want to do more than anything else now is go to a restaurant. Yep. And, you, and you want to be in a room with other people, and you want to do karaoke and sing with other people or go to the bar and watch a hockey game now more than ever because you can't do it. So it is also possible that on the other side of this, we will, uh, yes, keep our distance to some extent, but human nature being human nature, I'm not sure that's going to go on forever, that every day that goes by and we seem to be more safe and more secure, we're likely going to let our guard down a little bit and, and go back to our old habits because that's, what, that's the way we were used to doing things. And I, I'm not sure. I've seen this in my life too often where people say, oh, this is going to change everything. You know, take 9-11. Oh, nothing's ever going to be the same. And yet within a couple of years, it's like it really never happened. We, we really have a lot of inertia. We like doing what we like to do, and we want to get back there as quickly as we can. Well, SARS is a great example of that, especially here in Ontario. We saw that, uh, that epidemic, and I know that many of us swore up and down we're never going to let this happen again, and look where we are now. Yeah. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. Uh, you stay well, and uh, we'll talk again in the next little while. Appreciate Absolutely. the time today. Absolutely, Bill. Thank you. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Transportation Task Force, uh, I think most people in this community are aware of the background uh, in this whole circumstance, that uh, in December the uh, Minister of Transport, Carolyn Mulroney, came into town and announced that the provincial government was not going to be funding the LRT project here in Hamilton. Uh, much to the consternation of uh, the mayor and a few other people in town, a lot of other people in this town, I suppose. Uh, but they did say that uh, the billion dollars is still on the table. And uh, they struck a task force and uh, said they want these people to come back with recommendations on how to spend that billion dollars. 
Uh, well, the report's out, and uh, I've read it and reread it a number of times over the weekend and uh, read the reaction that some of the other people have had to that. So we're going to delve into this today because this is very important. I understand, obviously, COVID-19 is job one right now for just about everybody, but uh, the future transportation of this community is going to be part of that discussion at some point, and uh, this may well uh, lay the groundwork for that. Uh, we are going to hear from Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger a little bit later on in this hour and get some other reaction to it. Right now, though, I want to uh, welcome the chair of the Transportation Task Force uh, back to the program. Tony Valeri uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Tony, good morning. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Uh, interesting report, fascinating report. Uh, by the way, uh, well written, too. Very easy to follow along. Uh let me ask you, first of all, maybe just for a couple of seconds, we could uh, go back and talk about the mandate, because I think some people had some some problems understanding exactly what you were charged to do. Well, if you go right back uh, to the mandate itself, I mean, uh, what the task force was asked to do was to prepare a preliminary list of recommendations on how the province could spend the billion dollars of capital funding that's been committed for transportation infrastructure in the city of Hamilton. And so, uh, you know, it, it was essentially that preliminary list. And, and what we did then was uh, we looked at the work that had been done by the city of Hamilton in terms of transportation planning, by the province. Uh, we talked to Metrolinx. We talked to Infrastructure Ontario. Uh, I mean, our intent was not to, to reinvent a process or to reinvent some new body of evidence. It was to look at the existing evidence uh, and delve into that in a bit more detail and then determine what are, uh, from a task force perspective, what are those priorities that we would like to put forward in that preliminary list. From an existing list, though, the, like you guys, we're not going to come back, as you told us on the program a few weeks ago, Tony, you weren't going to come back and say, uh, I think we should build a, a, a mid-pen highway or something like that. I mean, that, that's not within the mandate of what you were supposed to do. That's external to this. And, I mean, you know, you can have an opinion on this, but uh, the billion dollars, I guess, was earmarked for Hamilton projects, correct? For Hamilton projects, uh, there was a very long list of, of uh, projects that were uh, provided to us. Uh, we took the approach of a developing uh, a bit of a framework, uh, a set of goals and criteria that we uh, that we uh, established in concert with, you know, the principles of uh, the Metrolink's business cases or uh, uh, hearing from the McMaster Institute of Transportation and Logistics on how best to develop uh, framework and and criteria. And, and then we looked at this very long list of, of projects, and there were highway projects, there were uh, other types of infrastructure projects that were part of this very long list, and then created a short list, and then ultimately uh, the list of preliminary recommendations, which is made up of these three, uh, these three projects. Uh, I'm just looking at uh, the executive summary here. We'll get into some of the details in a second. But uh, the task force acknowledged further work is needed to understand the operating and maintenance responsibilities and associated costs, as well as potential financial tax and policy impacts of each project. Uh, do we extrapolate from that, Tony, that uh, it was the committee's feeling that there's still work to be done on any of these projects? Uh, there is. I mean, there's still work to be done on all three of the projects. And it was, uh, you know, when we, when we uh, had a call with the minister on April 9th. Uh, so two things. One, we were pleased to hear that she was accepting the report and also that she was going to be requesting uh, Metrolix and Infrastructure Ontario to conduct a technical review of the, of the recommendations that we have made. Because during our deliberations, it was clear that there were that there was some additional work that needed to be done in order to better understand uh, what ultimately are the substantial benefits that any of the three projects might provide to Hamiltonians. Uh, again, to go back to, to the terms of reference here, one uh, of the things you identified in the report here, uh, you want a system that offers fast, frequent, reliable options to move people and goods across all transportation modes, uh, supports economic growth and the efficient movement of people and goods, protects our environment and minimizes adverse environmental impacts, considers and supports future transportation technologies, and can be implemented within a specific time frame. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, in your discussions, though, with the task force, Tony, did you rank those those objectives? Uh, in terms of the uh, of the objectives themselves, there wasn't a, an order of priority for the objectives, save and except there was one that I think you indicated you wanted to get back to in a second, and that was that the the actual billion dollars was was going to be sp spent 
or irrevocably committed in some fashion to the city of Hamilton within a two-year period. Uh, we then went through each of the other uh, criteria and and provided uh, some commentary, and, and ultimately there were projects that ranked better, for instance, on greenhouse gas, some ranked better on accessibility, uh, also the issue of the impact on congestion. So it, it was a... It was a a deliberative process where we, we we looked at each of the criteria, looked at the projects, and then measured those projects against the criteria, and then you know, brought in Metrolinks, brought in experts, transportation experts, to glean uh, um, how these projects would impact uh, and, and, and align with the criteria that we've established. In further or previous discussions, you've already talked about that, and, and that, that thing about getting this done in a timely fashion within this two-year period is really, I guess, facing a political reality that governments can change and governments can change their minds about things, and you want to make sure that that commitment's going to be done. And the longer we wait, in other words, uh, the more precarious that money becomes. And, and that's not a ref- necessarily a reflection on this government. It's just a reflection on, on how politics works. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, priorities may change. Uh, you know, things happen. Uh, we're in the middle of, of, a, of a global pandemic. Uh, and so the commitment is there. Uh, it was repeated that the billion dollars is there for the city of Hamilton for transportation uh, infrastructure, transit infrastructure. And so we thought we felt as a committee that that one of the overriding recommendations needed to be that uh, over this next two-year period that that money is spent uh, for Hamilton or irrevocably committed to Hamilton in some fashion so that we did not get into uh, perhaps, a, you know, a, you know a, a cha- like an electoral uh, issue and then, you know, uh, you'll, you'll have, um, you know, changes or, um, you know, r- irrespective, uh, you know, Priorities may change uh, over time, but we wanted to make sure that, that this commitment uh, was going to be met. And frankly, I've had every indication uh, by this government that they are prepared to meet this commitment. So I think from, my Hamil- from the perspective of Hamilton, I think that that's, uh, that's a very key point and one that, uh, that, we should, uh, that we should pay attention to. With Tony Valera, of course, the chair of the uh, Transportation Task Force, uh, whose report was released last week. Uh, not unexpectedly, Tony, there have been some different interpretations of, of some of the recommendations that you put forth here. I guess that's, that's going to happen, I suppose, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but the one thing I think that we can all consistently agree upon is, uh, is what the committee is looking for here is uh, $1 billion in high-order transit. And uh, you list three possible options here. Uh, light rail transit, bus rapid transit, and of course commuter go rail, uh, which are, as you mentioned, already existing projects that are on the books, and some work and research has been done in all of these. Uh, but again, in reading this over and rereading this over, uh, I didn't get the sense that you prioritized those three. This bill is not a not a list of priorities, and I want to want to want to make that uh, very clear that from a task force perspective, uh, we put forward uh, two intra city higher order transit projects and that, that was as you mentioned uh brt on the b and a lines and and uh light rapid transit on on the b line around along the king main street corridor uh there is a preference from the task force for intra higher order transit the either the lrt or b or b line uh on the b line and brts um uh, and then only if uh, after further technical analysis, the projects are found not to be feasible for some for some reason. Then we would recommend to go to the intercity transit uh, in the form of 15-minute two-way all-day go service. Uh, you know, at the Hamilton Go Center. So, so there w- these are not a list of they're not listed as priorities in order. Uh, it was communicated to the minister that she should be instructing uh, MetroLink and IO to look at at all three of these projects and begin the, the technical work on all three projects concurrently uh, and, and ensure that the work is done uh, to, to ultimately provide the greatest benefit uh, to Hamiltonians, both from, from the perspective of you know, accessibility, dealing with congestion and, congestion, and then the economic uplift that transportation infrastructure projects might provide. So to that point, then, it's actually Metrolinks that's going to make this determination. They, they will do the ranking after they do their research. Well, it'll be based on evidence. Uh, 
yeah. so they will develop they will develop their business cases for each of these three projects and determine uh, you know Hamilton's transportation needs. Work with the city of Hamilton, I'm sure, uh, with developing that business case, but ultimately uh, providing that report to the minister on these three projects uh, and and one of them. Uh, I think should be able to come out on top from the perspective of the uh, the benefits to Hamiltonians overall, um, and I and, and I think it's something uh, that uh, you know is it's a very important point. I'm glad you highlighted it because it's a very key point of this task force report in that there is no priority to to what we have provided. There is a list of three projects two intra-city higher-order transit project and one intercity higher transit project. By the way, just for the purpose of clarity here, when you mentioned about that GO service area, you talk about the Hunter Street station, aren't you? That's correct. Yeah, not the one down in the north end by Leuna. Uh, so it That's would be right. using, and, and it's the creation, by the way, for those who have not read the report, uh, since there's been so much consternation over the years about sharing lines, you're talking about actually installing a new line that would, would be exclusive, I guess, for Go. Is that right? Well, it would be a dedicated line is, is what's yeah. being contemplated there, right? Yeah, and, and again, we want to underscore to everybody, uh, these are not policies. Uh, these are the recommendations after the, the research and the work that you guys did. Uh, the government. Uh, the pro- provincial government will set policies, obviously, after their work with uh, Infrastructure Ontario and with uh, with Metrolinx, of course. I, Tony, are you comfortable with the time frame? I know that you're, you're strongly recommending that it needs to be done within these two years. Yet at the same time, you're suggesting uh, in the in the report, in the recommendations, uh, that there's still some work that needs to be done on all three of those projects and as far as, as, as researching and, and deciding how this is going to happen. Uh, governments can sometimes move at glacial speed. Sometimes they can move very rapidly in situations like this. Are, are you comfortable that the minister has given you the assurances that they're going to get this thing going? Well, uh, yes. In, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable that, that the desire is there by the minister, now having received the report, to engage Metrolinx and I.O. Uh, I mean, I, none of us uh, contemplated the impacts of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Mm, of course. Uh, so, so I, I do think you know it, that that some of this work uh, may be affected. Uh, that's yet to be determined. But but folks are still working, mind you, uh, working remotely and working in a very, very different manner. As I'm sure a lot of your listeners are are attesting to that. Uh, but uh, but what I am very comfortable with is the desire and determination to move forward as quickly as possible. And there is no doubt that while uh, we're dealing with the global pandemic, that it's it's temporary and will come out of this. And I think coming out of it, uh, transportation will be a very key element in in, uh, in economic uh, policy and economic development. So the connectivity between cities, uh, the ability to move uh, people, uh, the ability to, to deal with congestion, uh, all of those things, I think, lend themselves to uh, to being economic enablers for, for cities and economies. So as we come out of this pandemic, this type of investment will certainly be required. Uh, and again, I don't know if we can read between the lines here, but even in the press release that the ministry released as they released the report, seemed to reiterate uh, their commitment to the billion dollars. So I guess you know, as much as we can, we can take that to the bank. But you also call on the federal government to be a player in this, or at least to have Metrolinx uh, explore that possibility. And I know that there have been some rumblings out of Ottawa that, yeah, we might consider this. But obviously, you're going to be looking for, or at least Metrolinx at this stage now, since they're going to carry the ball from here. Uh, they're going to be looking for a commitment from Ottawa here, to, if, if in fact there's money available. Well, I, I think it's it's fair to say that during the work that uh, that the task force was doing, that one of the challenges that was identified with LRT was the available the availability of committed uh, capital funding, um, and so uh, that's why we recommended to the province that in addition to the technical work that that would be required on the LRT uh, and the other uh, pro- projects, that they should engage other levels of government uh, to uh, to identify any and all potential capital funding contributions for, uh, for any potential LRT project, um, and also look at other ways to reduce it. I think... I think, you know, it was clear through our, through our deliberation, this was one of the items that kept coming back. Certainly, you know, technical issues and the issues of ridership and all of those things. But, but certainly from a financial perspective, this was one of the big barriers. And so, uh, 
I think the report uh, would have been lacking without uh, directing that recommendation to further explore uh, financing opportunities or financial contributions by other levels of government. Tony, we talked about the work that Metrolinks and, and Infrastructure Ontario are going to be doing here, and they're reporting back to the ministry, obviously. Uh, and, I go, and this is not your call, but did you get any sense in your discussion with the ministry, a, any role the city is going to play in this situation? I, I, are they a player here, or are they just simply going to be getting the information once the province makes a determination? Well, I, I think the city will will be providing two metro links as they as they uh, again. This is not. I wouldn't take this as gospel. This would be my interpretation. Yeah. Uh, I, I would I would say that the city would play a role in providing uh, the transportation uh, needs uh, updated uh, information for metro links to include in their uh, in their business case. Uh, I also think that there would be, you know, a back and forth from a technical perspective uh, in terms of road allowances. And I think of uh, the uh, BRT on the A-line, you know, there's been, uh, I don't believe, any work done there. So that kind of uh, discussion between the city and Metrolinx will be very important. Um, So I do think that there will be uh, a very strong engagement with the city of Hamilton um, for uh, on the uh, for the development of that business case uh, that ultimately will go to the minister. Uh, is there a concern on your part that this is going to reopen the debate, which could just drag this thing out uh, for an interminable amount of time? Well, that's why we were really clear that that this is not about uh, restarting any debate. This is about building on the work. That's been done and putting in within it, putting it within uh, a time constraint, right? So we said uh, that two-year commitment is one that the minister has has indicated that they're supportive of. Uh, the work that needs to be done is the further technical work. It's you know the EA work on mm-hmm. the uh, on the LRT. How much of that could be applied to uh, a BRT on the B line? Uh, what kind of EAs required on the A line? I mean, in all of that, I would argue that, and again, we're, you know, we're in this global pandemic. Coming out of this global pandemic, I would also argue that that uh, the regulatory aspect of of what's required here to move projects forward uh, will also be accelerated. Right? I I do think that that the province will look at these opportunities and will look to accelerate uh, where they can. Uh, EAs or any type of uh, regulatory burden that might stand in the way of getting projects off the ground. Tony Valeri, Chair of the uh, Transportation Task Force. Tony, as always, thank you so much for the time today. As I say, I, 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 this is a, a very interesting and I think a report, and it, it's, I think it's going to serve as the foundation for some future discussion between the province uh, for our transportation needs here. Uh, we'll certainly see how the ministry decides to handle this from here. But thank you so much for the great work that you've done, and thanks for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.